Chapter 17 of What the Boys Did Over There by Henry Fox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years and a Half of War by Sergeant F. R. Muir, number 81611, 10th Battalion, CEF. Six months before the war had been declared, I left New York City for Winnipeg, Canada to play at the Winnipeg Theatre, and remained there until war was an established fact. On August 6, 1914, I enlisted as an American and joined the 32nd Battalion CEF. After about five months' training, my battalion was ready and eager for service. From Halifax, Nova Scotia, we set out on the former Red Star liner Vaderland, bound for the battlegrounds of civilization, each and every boy of us keyed up to the highest pitch of patriotism. When we were three days at sea, we ran out of cigarettes. A number of the boys had boxes of strong cigars with them, and these they passed around quite generously. We smoked with the usual gusto, and also the usual results. A ton of fish must have been fattened on food that was intended solely to strengthen us for the combat. This experience, coupled with seasickness, made four of us refuse to wake up one morning, for which we were brought up before the major and sentenced to cleaning porthole windows. We did not relish this labor, and one porthole each was the extent of our efforts for half the day. In the afternoon, we were set to peeling potatoes, cleaning the dishes and scrubbing the lower decks, which we finally accomplished after much pouting and grumbling. As we neared the coast of Ireland, the ships which comprised our convoy seemed to be making a beeline for any port they could reach. Word had been received that subs were in the vicinity, and full steam ahead was the order of the day. The fact that our ship was the slowest tub of the bunch, making only about nine knots per hour, added darn little to our comfort. Finally, after much excitement, we docked at Queenstown. Major Ashton, in command of our battalion, had the gangplanks lowered and invited us out to a route march through the city. We aroused quite some enthusiasm and curiosity, as we were the first Canadian troops to ever land in Ireland. Our next stop was Liverpool, and there the dinky trains which to us were a real joke in comparison to our own huge monsters at home, afforded us opportunity for funny comment. These trains are little bits of things, and from fifteen to twenty men were crammed into a small compartment, normally holding about ten. Several of us were unable to sit down all the way to London. The best feature of the train service was the fond goodbyes given us by the young ladies who usually gave them with a kiss, something that not many of us found fault with. On our journey through London, we were royally received by English Red Cross ladies who fed us with welcome lunches that sure did fill the vacuum beneath the belt. From Folkestone, fully equipped, 
we left for France. We knew we were going over to reinforce the gallant 10th Battalion, and this knowledge added to our good spirits. We were relieving real heroes, and we knew it was up to us to carry on, as nobly as had our predecessors. Every mother's son of us was eager, yes, anxious, to start in on real action. Canada expected much from us, and we would not disappoint her. Arriving at Boulogne, we were a bit peeved as we anticipated being received by enemy shell fire, but silence was the only reception we got. Red Cross ambulances were arriving in countless numbers, bringing in the wounded, and this was our first glimpse of battle's havoc. This sort of took the heart out of us, but only for a few moments, for with that scene came a gritting of the teeth, and on each face could be seen a newborn determination to see this thing through to a successful conclusion. After a night spent tentless in the pouring rain, covered only with straw and the mean wet sky, we entrained for an unknown destination, and landed at Pop Rain, which surely looked like an unknown destination, as it was a typical jerkwater village inhabited only by a few old men and women. Through this village we hiked and up a road leading to the front-line trenches. This road had been shot full of shell holes, which made walking very uncomfortable. The further on we walked, the nearer came Fritzy's 42-centimeter shells, fired from the largest cannon ever known up to that time, the Jack Johnsons, as they were called. We were kept busy dodging the shells that seemed to burst all around us, yet never hit us, but in our hearts and souls we realized that at last we were on speaking terms with Mr. Death himself and this sobered us up some, you bet. "'Twas no unusual thing to feel your hair stand right up straight on end and hear your knees beat a tattoo as they knocked against each other. However, we soon overcame this feeling as the purpose of our mission dawned upon us. I had a good opportunity to observe how young fellows act when each knows that death may be his portion at any moment. In a section composed of eight men, I noticed that one was laughing as lightly as though he was safe and secure at home. Another was singing a crazy song and kept marching along defying death or any other horror that might overtake him. Still another took the matter so seriously as to walk along in a sort of semi-conscious daze with a look of stupidity on his face, oblivious to all surroundings. There is the case of Private Fred Wheelhouse, a Canadian lad of about twenty-two years, who, while walking under fire of the German guns, kept on playing his mouth organ or harmonica, until struck on the head by a piece of shrapnel which killed him instantly and spattered his brains upon his nearby comrades. This was our first casualty, and right then and there we solemnly swore that we would avenge him. 
on april twenty one nineteen fifteen while awaiting orders in our reserve trenches two miles from the front line which was being held by the canadian troops from the first second fifth and eighth battalions the germans let loose a heavy gas attack upon them at that time the gas mask was hardly known the men being equipped with small inefficient respirators and naturally the casualties were very heavy as a result the men had to fall back losing a lot of the lighter guns this made necessary the use of the men in the reserve trenches and an order was immediately issued that we stand too ready to take our places in a counter-attack which was to be launched in the morning imagine if you can the feelings of the lads awaiting the rising of the sun which probably meant the last sunrise many of them would behold the tortures of the death house i am sure are mild when compared to those endured by the boys in the tense hours prior to the attack especially when one has to listen to the moaning of the wounded who are being carried back the lines it is far from encouraging and it did not surprise me when after going through a night like this that each and every one of us became fatalists at five thirty in the morning the time set for the attack we received word to go and believe me we were glad of it i felt as though i was ready for death to end my anxiety or else to fight it out right on the spot to a finish our officer lieutenant ball was the first to jump to the front after a lusty come on boys he shot forward into the turmoil caused by our heavy artillery with a recklessness bordering on insanity his action was an inspiring one and we boys were ready to follow him to hell if needs be in that charge i enjoyed the experience of getting my first german i crashed into him a big burly six-footer and now that my wish to meet one had been gratified and i stood before him i did not know whether to shoot him punch him kick him or stick him as you would a pig not having much experience with the bayonet i acted on impulse and rammed it right through his stomach oh boy what a squeal he let out putting my foot on his breast i pulled the bayonet from out his vitals taking along with it his bowels this nerved me and i rushed forward like a raving maniac stopping for nothing i plowed my way through them using first my butt and then the bayonet until i had rushed right into their second line and holy jerusalem right smack into a whole nest of them we were proceeding rather methodically in cleaning them out when a shell from a jack johnson burst in the midst of our gallant little company killing five outright and separating two from their legs and arms i myself losing a leg and having my shoulder put out of commission i was conscious all the time of what had happened and managed to crawl into a shell hole and slap a bandage about my leg with my shoulder i could do nothing 
and after lying exposed for two hours the company stretcher bearers picked me up and carried me back to the dressing station from there i was sent to number thirteen general hospital boulogne but by the time i arrived gangrene had set in and the doctors there could do nothing for me again i was transferred this time to london and from there to cambridge a dr cook holding the rank of major and from new york announced he would cure me in two months but the job was a more difficult one than he had anticipated and six months was required ere i could walk again during that time the leg had to be amputated to the knee i was then discharged and received from the canadian government an artificial limb which i later discarded for a better one made in little old new york End of chapter 17